Thanks for joining us once again on Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. My name is Adam Jesiorski, and as always, I am here with Josh Thingbon. How are you, Adam? I am doing pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. And I am excited to be starting a new episode arc. Yeah, we've, we've, uh, I don't think we exhausted the topical paleo limnology or topical topics, but, uh, Maybe for now, we'll move on to, to something else just for a bit of variety. Yeah, so it's a case of changing things up and looking at uh, looking at the uh, episode archive. Thought it'd be a good idea to scale things back down from the 40,000 foot view, looking at big environmental problems, to maybe the 40 micron view, and just go into some detail on individual bioindicators. Yeah, that should be fun. Uh, analytically, those are our best listened to episodes, but I think that might also be because they're our first episodes. <laughs> so we'll see. This is a bit of a test as well, just to see if people perhaps are more interested in some of the more methodological stuff uh, or interested in it just because it's a bit of a change. Yeah. Or just, you know, I guess it's a case of talk about what, you know, paleolimnology podcast and talking about broader stuff like climate change. Um, maybe you can go elsewhere. Yeah. for more informative discussions but i don't know how many other podcasts you're going to find that would de dedicate a whole hour long discussion to diatoms all the beauty that is the and chironomids yeah. and things like that yeah no i think that that makes sense this is this is our niche so let's explore a few more parts of it for the next few episodes at least until we decide time to move on to something else and Until we we'll get come back. Yeah, exactly. So what should we start with? What bioindicator? We've talked about a whole bunch of them in the history of paleolimnology in some of those topical issues uh, when we're exploring specific environmental issues. What do we want to begin with? Because there's lots of options, certainly more than this arc is going to contain. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think it'd make most sense to at least for this arc, um, focus on the big ones in terms of the amount of uh, research that has been done on them individually. Um, but one in particular has recently been on my mind, on my driveway, and in my sinuses. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and for, for those of you who haven't guessed, we're going to talk about Paul and uh, today and it really is a, a a good choice the last few days weeks i guess uh here in southern ontario and across uh into southern locations uh that are in the spring have just been inundated with pollen more so than in in recent years uh so it's a, a good choice yeah the sediment record is being loaded as we speak. With, uh, uh, enormously. Absolutely. I, I saw a, a news article because we're not going to talk about like allergies and stuff like that. <laughs> we'll leave that for the medical po podcasts. Uh, but I, I did see a, a CBC article that in Montreal where they were recording this was maybe three or four days ago. Today's the 25th of May for those uh, since it will come out a little bit later. Uh, they had something like three times the highest 
pollen counts that they had measured over the last five years. So it really is a very heavy pollen year in 2021. Okay. So, so in many ways, still a topical topic. Yep. Um, but after just saying we were going to refocus our efforts on things that we know a lot about, um, I have to confess, I know virtually nothing about pollen. <laughs> <laughs> so do we have a guest host this week? Uh, no, we couldn't, uh, couldn't, couldn't round one up. Uh, so I guess we'll just have to do our best. We uh, have some resources. We'll definitely link those in the show notes when they become available for finding more information. And we'll dive into our sort of general knowledge, which is often where we kind of put these things yeah. uh, from a level. Yeah. Yes, by the seat of our pants. Um, all right. Well, given that we don't have a expert guest to lean on, uh, we've got to start at the beginning with... What is pollen? It's tiny. It has a bit of a yellowy color when it's all over your car and your driveway. And there's so much from a tree next to our house that it's actually all over the inside of the house. Um, but it is produced by plants, obviously, both gymnosperms and angiosperms. And it's uh, similarly related and often collectively kind of uh, brought together with uh plant or with materials produced by organisms that are not pollen but are spores that are effectively equivalent in terms of the reproductive function that they serve for ferns and mosses and club mosses those yeah. organisms the lower in air quotes lower plants yeah so they're the male microgametophytes of seed plants mm -hmm. that's the correct answer for those keeping score at home <laughs> But yes, so basically it's um, part of a reproductive material from plants and we throw spores in there from ferns and mosses as well. And basically the individual organisms are not mobile, uh, so they basically inundate the earth with There's their... Yeah, not their seed in, in the, the true sense of the word, because that's what comes after the pollen has uh, found its uh, matching materials uh, but in terms of their dispersal mechanism of dispersing their uh, sexual parts and the i guess the subdiscipline focused on uh this this field of study is referred to as palynology and i um only just found out in terms of like doing the bit of background reading for this that it that doesn't mean the study of pollen. It, yeah, I didn't know that. Take either. it back to its Greek roots. It's the study of dust, which is kind of interesting. And there's your trivia point right there for sure. Yeah. And so it's basically, um, and it would include not just pollen, but various other particulates within, I guess, its scope. But by and large, in terms of paleolimnological sense, uh, pollen would be the major component that is most studied under the umbrella term of palynology mm -hmm. and there are some early records uh dating back as early as the 1640s in terms of uh pollen analyses but in terms of i guess the modern development of the field we're talking similar to paleolimnology in terms of dating back to like the mid to late uh 1800s yeah so one of the early paleo indicators uh, right up there with the sort of the diatoms and and those other 
organisms and and really widely applied geographically uh, and uh, throughout that time period. It's not something that kind of was used earlier and then fell out of vogue in terms of the the paleo indicators. It's as commonly used for all sorts of different questions as uh, as it may have been 150 years ago. Yeah. And um, pollen as a bioindicator, it's like you're using a compound microscope to look at these on the slide. Uh, the pollen grains vary in size tremendously between species. Um, between, I don't know, I think a min-max range is 10 to 100 microns, with, but with most being in the 20 to 30 range. Um, and pollen grains, or the outer wall, I guess, is made of cellulose and something called sporopollenin. Super resistant polymer. Uh, I, I'm not even sure if it, it's completely understood what what the structural nature of that polymer is, but the the take home of it is that it's incredibly resistant. It it break it doesn't uh, break down from the attack of all sorts of um, materials that are found in the environment, including enzymatic attacks. So it's not broken down by biological activity in the same way that uh, the vast majority of of organic molecules are, and that's one of the things that makes it incredibly resistant to uh, breakdown in the sediments. Uh, particularly in anoxic sediments and uh so and therefore so uh, long lasting in the environment so and if you think about all of the things we we think of from bio and from a bioindicator perspective it's really a, a perfect example of what makes a great bioindicator it's incredibly resistant it's produced in absolute uh, massive quantities uh it, it's generally pretty taxonomically distinct. Um, we're not talking about necessarily species level, but but we'll we'll get into that a little bit more, but really is perfect for that. And um, because uh, it is so resistant, it preserves really well. Um, but another plus to that is that um, in terms of the isolation, um, you can use some really nasty stuff and get slides that contain very little other than the pollen that you're interested in. And that is, you know, all the hallmarks of a bioindicator site. Check, 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 check. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. Not only, yeah, the, exactly. Uh, not only it does it is it resistant, but you can get rid of absolutely everything else. You get really clean slides, which may not be the case for some others, like diatoms, for example, where you have a lot. Sometimes you may have a lot of other stuff there. Pollen being one of the few things that can resist the the really strong acids. That's all that's left. Yeah. And as someone that has spent a lot of my life picking through relatively dirty carotamid tray, uh, <laughs> trays, looking in, you know, playing for find the head capsule, that, that has a lot of appeal, starting with clean Sounds slides. Sounds pretty from good. The eh? Yeah, for sure. Or uh, all sorts of uh, siliclastic material from the catchment and diatom slides. Yeah, no, that, that would be nice. But there is a, a bit of a cost in terms of what you have to do to get to that stage. All right, so decided that you want to be working with some pollen on some very, very clean slides in your microscope analysis. How do you get about achieving those slides? Well, like 
any of the indicators, you got to get rid of some of the other stuff. And you can do that by uh, physical separation, sieving, or some sort of floating technique, depending on the, the materials. Uh, and there's a, a part of that you could, because pollen falls into a fairly small size range, you could sieve away the larger stuff. Uh, or you can, and or, I guess, uh, you can use a chemical now a chemical uh, treatment technique to get rid of all the other things and if mm, you know in a sample there's a lot of pollen if you think of what lake sediments are and the common indicators we see a lot of what else is there is going to be diatoms once you've got rid of some of the organic material uh, in the actual sediment itself and other silica uh, like silica based materials so you need something that can get rid of silica that's that's a bit of a challenge because silica itself is a very recalcitrant uh, molecule. It doesn't break down particularly easy. It's very stable. So you need to have uh, something quite strong to break that silicon uh, oxygen bond. And there are a few different techniques that can be used. But for the, the sort of classical pollen analysis technique, it's hydrofluoric acid. <sighs> Yeah, unfortunate. Everyone's like, oh, the breaking bad stuff, right? People still uh, people get that reference anymore? Has it been too long now since I, breaking bad? Uh, I think we're still in that period. Although okay. I do remember, you know, that was the episode. Uh, I think it's like the second one or the third one where my wife is like, yep, yeah, this show is not for me. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not to mention, I, I don't think they had their chemistry quite right in, <laughs> in the episode. So don't use it hydrofluoric acid to dissolve a body everyone but uh to dissolve uh silica glass absolutely it works really well but it is a, a very dangerous compound uh for for a number of reasons yeah like i um have never worked with it myself i've never worked with um with pollen on any level really um but i have heard through the grapevine that if at queens you're working on uh, hydrofluoric acid, uh, you're supposed to call the hospital in advance to let them know you were working with it, which in many ways would dissuade me from ever working yeah. with it, really. And I think uh, the, rightly so, many others as well. Uh, I don't think anyone I know at the time that I was there used hydrofluoric acid. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very nasty compound. Uh, and it's one of those, I would say it's probably one of the more dangerous compounds that are used in any significant quantity in a chemistry biology sort of laboratory. Certainly there are things that are more dangerous uh, out there, but they're often used in very small quantities. So think just thinking about my time at Ottawa U in the contaminants lab, we would have um, things to spike samples that had PCB concentrations that would absolutely have given you cancer, <laughs> but you would put, you know, nano, uh, liter kind of concentrations into a sample so you were never working with any large number big bottle of yeah exactly cancer. exactly whereas hydrofluoric acid you would need to put in you know a number of milliliters into each sample so you're talking about you know maybe not a liter but you're using pretty large quantities and it uh it does result in some particularly nasty uh burns uh it has very good at pulling kind of the base uh, cations apart so it draws the calcium out of your bones and uh, and the, the crazy thing is you don't really know that you got it 
that you're in in trouble until a little bit later uh, because it may not be evident right away that you've uh, been exposed to it. And you spill it on you and then the harbor, it's just like the stuff that horror movies made up. Um, all right. Okay. So and one of the, I guess one of the actually, the only other thing that seems a little strange with it because it's a, you know, you think of this, oh my God, it's this nasty stuff, but you keep it in plastic bottles because it, it attacks uh, glass really well, uh, but it doesn't attack plastic in the same way. So it, it, it doesn't even, I don't know, it just, when you see a bottle of it, you just read the label like, oh, hydrofluoric acid. Mm -hmm. It's just kept in what looks like you would keep, you know, rubbing alcohol kind of, or, or uh, ethanol in, in the same sort of bottle, though, usually a smaller bottle. So yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting molecule, certainly not to be terrified of, but definitely respected. Absolutely. All right. And then I think another thing that's particularly interesting about, uh, element of working with pollen, um, outside of the hydrofluoric acid used to isolate the pollen from the rest of the sample, um, is that you are large, you're never really working with relative abundance data. It's always in concentration data. And then there's the whole element of spiking your sample with a known sample of something to get like a volumetric uh, um, representation of the amount of stuff you're working with. And I always thought it was just kind of cool, the idea of, I guess, there's plastic microspheres, but also like podium spores is a common one, or yeah. I guess it really depends on where you live. Basically, some exotic thing in known quantities is often put on the slides that you count in um, in tandem with your actual sample to know how much stuff is in whatever volume of sediment. Um, and I don't know. That's again something I'm not really aware with. Although I, I think I maybe my very own, my one and only diatom slide maybe did the microspheres in there. My, years and years ago, but I don't even remember if there's microspheres on those yeah. slides. Yeah, it's interesting, right? You have to, I'm not sure we've ever really talked about the difference between absolute abundance and relative abundance in terms of uh, reasons you might use one, even methodological considerations when trying to do that. But pollen is definitely an example where uh, it, it's, I, I don't think I've ever seen pollen data represented only in, in relative uh, proportions of uh, of different taxa so yeah you gotta put something in it that you can count and the key we won't go into all the details but basically the key step is that you you have to be very careful of knowing the uh, quantity of materials that are making their way through all of the different steps so whether it's starting with a precise known uh, volume of the sediment so you can talk about how much of one species there is per milliliter or per cubic centimeter, uh, or how much dilution you do at any rinsing kind of stages, because all the amount of volume you're, you're working with, if any, um, you know, changes in that could alter the concentration down to how much of that initial sample makes it onto each of the different slides. That's really challenging. And one way to do that is to spike the samples with something that you can easily identify so if you lived in an area where lycopodium was well uh, found or found commonly you probably wouldn't use that's a club moss uh, the spores of that species you would use something else but around here we don't have those so you can use those uh, as a as a material to count this exotic uh, material and then you can 
fat calculate to the concentration per unit volume. I always find it interesting of like how, like this is where I'm just pleading ignorance. Maybe it's a stupid question of wondering if like how to know that concentration. How how is that a known thing in terms of your concentrated lycopodium spore? Say that again. Uh, pardon. The lycopodium spore yep. concentration when you put a known quantity of them into your sample, like. Yeah, well, you don't count each individual one. That's true. So you're assuming that the concentration that's in this uh, liquid commercially sample, available yeah, amount. Yeah, exactly. But I'm just, it's like how is that value obtained? Is what I'm thinking. Oh, I don't know. That, that's a good question. Uh, it, so probably it's made from a dry stock. Of nothing of like a podium slides. There may be like, some like QAQC like that. I would imagine. It's possible that they use something like we would use for a particle size an analysis, like a laser scanning way of counting particles, because they're all the same, right? And they're all the same size. Um, so I imagine there's a like a laser diffraction kind of method for doing that if you wanted to. Maybe they just have summer students uh, count tons of slides just double, double check the bottles <laughs> it's like yeah just that's, one every case just that one's a sure. 10 that one's yeah. a nine <laughs> yeah there you go um, that sounds like fun but uh yeah and so the reason that you're working largely with accumulation rates um is because the source of the pollen um the plants um they have differential rates of pollen production differential methods of dispersal and i don't know how much this is on the list as well but i'm not sure how much is that's true in terms of differential preservation of pollen grains if they'll they all have that sporo pollen and then um compound is I yeah, i'm not sure perhaps some are not uh you don't have the same concentration of that versus some of the other materials i i believe that um just generally uh pollen from aquatic organisms may not preserve as as well and that, that kind of makes sense it's never or it should never really be exposed out of the environment so it's always in the aqueous environment doesn't have to travel as far relatively speaking uh, so maybe that that would be but yeah i don't know but absolutely for the other two huge variations in the production uh of how much pollen uh, an organism produces some amazing photos of what that looks like you know not just the ones of my my living room uh, and dispersal is a huge one, right? So an, uh, a species that that disperses its pollen on the air is going to have a very different characteristics from one that requires a pollinator, an organism, uh, an animal to come and land on the plant and carry that pollen to the next plant. It's going to have very completely different characteristics in terms of um, the volume that's being produced, the how sticky it is, all those kind of different components. And then, and then on top of that, um, you know, the difference year to year, um, species to species. Um, so it's one of those things where, you know, more spruce pollen doesn't necessarily mean there is more spruce in the catchment. If it was just whatever, a bumper year for pollen production for spruce for that year, for some variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So it's very different from some of the other bioindicators like the diatoms as, as a good comparison to uh you know the, the a change in 
so we often are looking at relative abundance so changes within different species or between different species uh in the diatoms but even a change in the uh uh absolute abundance of diatom valves of a given species is is probably indicative of more of that species being produced and living in the lake as opposed to more of it getting to the lake more of it being produced more of it preserving so there's a lot of different uh, kind of parts that need to be put together when thinking about pollen i think that makes it one of the most kind of interesting but also one of the more complicated uh, from a data understanding perspective of the actual fossil data yeah and in terms of that conceptual complicatedness uh, a big element that comes in is that you know the trees are not in the lake and there's like a step <laughs> yeah, removed yeah. uh so you're not recreating conditions within the lake you're um looking to infer conditions of what's going on in the catchment um so you're still inferring things like climate and tree line movements but it's all um i guess one step removed um because you're dealing more with landscape scale changes as opposed to the changes in an individual lake but that doesn't you know that being said uh does not make this uh an incredible uh useful technique in a variety of ways and um has been used in paleolimnology extensively yeah for sure like it it, it is a uh just to something that's a little bit different about it it could be a disadvantage if you're interested in really localized conditions but if you are trying to recreate larger landscape processes changes over uh, ecotone kind of uh, distances then that makes it incredibly powerful to do those so it really depends on the questions you're trying to ask yeah it's the right tools for the job and in terms of tools um you know we've got a history in paleolimnology um uh, ragweed pollen, for example, just presence absence um, prior to the, I think we, I think we probably mentioned this when talking about lead 210 in the past, but prior to the development of uh, lead 210 and other um, isotopic um, markers uh, dating um, tools, um, the arrival, I guess, of a ragweed peak in your pollen sample could be used as a dating marker for the initial land clearance by European settlers in North America. Yeah, so John talked about a, that in his uh, in the episode he was on from his masters, maybe or, or one of the the early cores that he worked on, as uh, the the lead to ten being such a, a huge development in paleolimnology. But yeah, the spike in ragweed, the surface you draw a straight line between them, and there you go, you have your chronology. Yeah, no, we'll have to um, post that picture. I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up, and it's just you know, it's, you know, a perfect chronology for uh, interpreting. But it doesn't mean that even now we have these these uh, really excellent radioisotopic techniques that pollen can't be used because for this example, ragweed ambrosia uh, just wasn't common prior to the clearing of the forests for European agriculture. And, and it happened so quickly that it really is a great marker. Now, it doesn't tell you much about what happened since then, but for putting that that uh, absolute dating uh, marker, really still yeah. commonly used. And it's just like everything else. It's like multi-proxy. And so having your um, 
ragweed rise marked on your chronology and it if it lines up with the early 1800s or depending on what catchment you're talking about and when that would have happened um if it lines up perfectly it's just like another feather in your cap so yes my chronology is strong let's move on yeah and we talked about that 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 often overlaps with where you know the half-life of lead to 10 gets to the point where there's not as high activity so it you know really still is a, a good indicator if you have that uh, possibility so in a north american context and I guess one thing that we've uh, talked about before in terms of a widely used paleoluminological tool is the program Tilia, um, which many, well, I, I don't know if that's true, actually. If many of our listeners, I guess, first of all, do we have many listeners? But outside of that, <laughs> proportionally, it's a relative abundance. Past, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was certainly talking about in, I'm in an accumulation rate mode. Um, <laughs> But uh, um, it's a commonly used program for producing stratigraphic diagrams that dates back to the early 90s. Um, and its development is very much rooted in pollen analysis. And that its logo and name is based on um, the pollen of, uh, I believe it's called basswood or linden, depending on yep. which hemisphere you're in. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and and the work of Eric Grimm, um, who recently passed away, I guess last year passed away, who came up with this program and so much uh, work done towards pollen analysis and some of the large databases on pollen. So that's one of the other things. There's so much information on pollen in a paleo environmental perspective, things like the Neotoma database. Uh, and a lot of it comes back to, to his work and, and Tilia. All right. So when you're using uh, pollen as a paleoluminological indicator, um, I think one clear difference compared to many other of the other bioindicators that we've talked about on, on on the show in the past is that you're reconstructing something that is very much relatable to our own existence. We're not dealing, like, yes, we're dealing with microscopic microscopic things, but not really dealing with microscopic organisms. Um, if you're looking at things like tree line changes or, you know, long-term changes on over like a Holocene record in a catchment or the tree line moving up and down mountain, um, those are very relatable in terms of what that means in terms of, you know, what you're I'm getting caught up here in like the word, but it's very, you know, appropriately sized and the changes are easy to visualize, maybe more so than some sort of change in the community dynamics related to an invasive species or pH changes. Like, yes, there's just a different level of relatability when you're talking about vegetation changes. For sure. I think relatable is, is exactly right. You know, if you're looking at changes in a diatom, if you're talking about them, you, you're trying to explain that's the individual. You're looking at the whole organism that you might have colonies that are a little bit bigger, but not much. Same with Cladocera and coronamids. Yeah, people are familiar with the biting, the non-biting midges and those sorts of things. But it's so easy to say, you know, the things that make you sneeze in the springtime, we look at those and that tells us how the trees have have potentially changed in a, a relatively large area. It, it just is very uh, easy to get across what it is you're looking at because people are familiar with forests moving and, and some of the long-term kind of uh, climatological uh, applications of pollen analysis from a, 
Holocene or or longer type of perspective. Um, but they're also, you know, clearly able to see things like agriculture and how if you take away that forest, all of that pollen is going to be gone. And now we're going to have the pollen from the things that are being planted there. So there's the, I, I absolutely agree. It's a very intuitive one for people to understand. Yeah. And then even though we're dealing with, and it's also interesting because in terms of, you know, if you're talking about like the diatoms and clodosterins, you're talking about things that have generation times um, of hours in some cases to days. When you're talking about forests, you're talking about things that have generation times of decades, but it's still able to see, you know, when when the changes are rapid, um, you know, like with things like human impacts, like clearing for agriculture or in th- um, some cases, um, I guess, um, extreme climate events or whatnot, um, you still have a very distinct change in the sediment record associated with them. And so, especially when you have the disappearance of things and the appearance of things, um, and it can be tied to the known history of the lake. Like, I mean, it's even, even though you're dealing with long lived organisms, they still, um, have very distinctive paleo records left behind. Yep. Yeah, the, the changes are as rapid as sort of the environment is changing. So if it's a slow, gradual climate progression of, uh, of uh, range modification, then those changes are going to be fairly subtle and, and take long time periods. But if a pathogen wipes out a forest and all of those trees die, they're not going to be producing any pollen. And that's going to be like, you know, turning off the switch, um, the tap, I guess, maybe a better example. And you'll see those rapid demarcations of, of change in, in the sediment record. So that, yeah, very effective and very powerful tool. And especially, and then also selective things, because right now, um, there's probably not too much ash pollen finding its way into Ontario lakes at the moment. Uh, no. the impacts of the emerald ash borer. And I just know on a municipal level around where I live, you know, like just in the last year or two, a huge number of ash trees have been taken down um, preemptively. And that will definitely be showing up in the uh, records of the lakes around here in, in short order. Yep, yeah, exactly. When the changes are quick, the response in, in the, the uh, indicator is, is also quite quick. So very uh, that's one of the other kind of check marks for a really good paleo bio indicator is rapid response to environmental changes and when they are rapid then pollen can do that so excellent and and disturbance is really that's that's a good example to to bring up there is that that's one of the main drivers of changes in vegetation communities especially those large pollen producing organisms like the trees climate disturbance but and generally outside of human impact, um, there's typically fairly slow turnover in plant communities. They don't move very fast, um, and so pollinases also lend themselves to long records and looking at things that uh, you know since the last glacial period. Um, there's lots of um, long core analyses looking at vegetative changes over the last ten thousand years, and uh, that's actually how I got my like first. Um, introduction to the world of paleo. I, as my fourth year thesis, I was working on diatoms, but I was working on a lake where, um, that had basically throughout the last 10,000 years, either been above or below 
the tree line several times, and that had already been established through the pollen record. And I was looking to see how the if the diatoms matched it. Mm -hmm. So looking at the ago. localized impacts of the climatic change as reconstructed by the pollen. Cool. There you go. Yep. And that wasn't in North America. That was a no. It was uh, well, I was in North America. Yeah. The actual lake was in um, in Sweden. Cool. Yeah. And and lots of similar types of work done here. Uh, that's basically how we know when the forest forests return to different locations. So whether it's in the Northwest Territories in Canada, which has a you know a, a record of maybe the last six thousand years since glaciers retreated, compared to Southern Ontario, which has a much longer record compared to south of the ice mass, because it, just because there wasn't a giant glacier there doesn't mean that the climate wasn't obviously different in the the glacial period as those uh, tree species have moved north all reconstructed from pollen and there's also a link i think to um the uh, crawford lake uh record uh in in this story because one crawford lake has been used as a, a long-term uh location uh because of the anoxic sediments at the bottom pole and, and everything is, is particularly well preserved. But also uh, there's been work there that on reconstructing the local indigenous group, I'm not sure, I, th I think it's an Iroquois, but don't quote me on that, um, uh, history of settlement pre-arrival uh, of the, uh, the settlers in the area and they only knew i'm trying to remember from like the display plaques and stuff but they only knew about this or, or inferred that there was a settlement around crawford lake uh based on the pollen records they found corn pollen in the sediment and because of that they realized that there was obviously corn is a very large um molecule it's transported by animals not not by wind so much so it doesn't travel very far and they lo and behold they went and reconstructed these uh i think they are iroquois longhouses that were in in the general area so very rapid cool. changes cool stuff cool yep. stuff yeah i'm sure i got part of that story wrong apologies for whoever did that work it's been many years since i was there <laughs> that's okay we'll look it up and uh i'll put uh, some links to the the actual facts related um, in the show notes eventually, but uh, it just goes to show um, how, you know, the stuff is complicated. Like, uh, you know, the dispersal type is a factor. So certain species are, um, are able to be reconstructed at different, differing, differing levels of confidence, depending on what's going around. And if you have something like that uh, in the catchment that, you know, cannot travel very far, you're not going to see it in a lot of places and when you do see it it means something and then um you know tie it in with what what other thing they're known in, about the history of the lake cool cool stuff yeah and uh i guess that, that's probably not a bad place to wrap it up if, if you know anything about pollen then I, i'm sure this wasn't all that informed but perhaps you you are uh someone who hasn't spent much time thinking about it and you picked up a few things from this just as we did as we were reading through some of these things but we have left a, a fair bit of stuff uh behind because there's a, a a number of different things that are found on pollen uh slides these nice clean slides you've prepared that aren't actually pollen um, but we didn't really go into those in detail 
that's something for another show. Okay. All right. We'll leave the, what are collectively, I think referred to as non pollen palynomorphs. So things that are not pollen, <laughs> uh, what, are, what was the word particulates that are not pollen yep. on, on these slides for another episode, another episode. But in the meantime, um, you know, if we have made any egregious errors or if it's all the pollen, uh, aficionados that also are dedicated listeners of the show, um, and you want to, uh, reach out to us and tell us that we missed something awesome or misstated something horribly, um, just contact us. Yeah. Or and just let us know what, what the Venn diagram for pollen and listeners, uh, <laughs> is because it'd be nice to know. Almost a circle. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Um, but, uh, thanks for listening to core ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleontology. Um, again, if you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment about, um, pollen or any other, um, paleo limnological related topic, please send us an email to core ideas, podcast at gmail.com. Or, uh, maybe easier. You can contact us through Twitter at core ideas, paleo, and there's only one a in paleo. All of our past episodes and the corresponding show notes slash blog posts can be found at our website at coreideas.ajesiorski.ca. And if you're so inclined, you can give us a rating or you can subscribe. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud, but you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify. Five-star rating would be great, but to be honest, we don't really care all that much. We're just doing this for fun. Uh, so that's it for now. So join us again next time as we continue to explore the small pictures within paleolimnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.